This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The Noon Business Hour is presented by the Village of Bedford Park. Let's kick things off with a check of Wall Street. At Bloomberg, we have, we'll check in with Denise Pellegrini coming up in just a few minutes. Let's tell you what's going on in the markets, though. The Dow down 117 points. The NASDAQ is down 125. And the S&P is down 18 points. Those markets have dropped really throughout the day because of the inflation news. Inflation up more than 6%. Let's find out what's going on there. Paul Christopher is here, head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute based in St. Louis. Paul, we're seeing a jump of 6.2% in October. Put this, I guess, in historical perspective and tell us what it means. Well, there's uh, several things to keep in mind here. First of all, we're comparing against a month last year when the economy was still mostly not closed, but very, very slow. And so inflation would have been also very, very low. So that, that comparison needs to be taken account of. And secondly, everybody knows about the shortages of goods on shelves and stores. That's because of supply disruptions that are really taking place around the world. They've been, they've been very persistent and, and very chronic uh, because in part uh, there's inefficiencies that will lay below the surface for years and decades and no one ever saw them to fix them because we didn't have COVID. Uh, and COVID itself is still creating problems, especially in our origins of supply chains out in Asia, places like Vietnam and China, seeing new infections that tends to either close down or thin out the workers available to work in factories. That in turn uh, uh, slows the output of, of those factories, and there's less for us, therefore, uh, to buy. So for investors looking forward, here's the real key. Inflation is likely to stay in this 6% range, which is high for us in recent times, but it's the, only the highest since 1990. So we're not talking about going back to the 1970s. What this is really all about is supply chain disruptions. We think inventories will catch up during the coming year. Some of the inefficiencies will be done away with, and COVID, we think, will recede somewhat. But the real, the real trick will be, do wages and rents and gas prices start making their way into inflation in a way that people say, well, it was up 2% last month. It's going to go up another 3% next month. If you get that sort of uh, that sort of dynamic going, and it's not there yet, and we don't think it will be, but if you do, then that would be negative for stocks. But short of that, we think margins are still good among companies. We're looking for good, solid earnings next year. The U.S. to lead the world in, in a strong recovery. We still like stocks over bonds here. Well, looking at the wider economy, what kind of an impact does it have, this uh, compounded inflation and the fact that, you know, this point compared to a year ago, Americans are able to buy much less with the money that they have. And that, as you're mentioning, I mean, it's not going to stop anytime soon. That's right. That That's a call that a friction where uh, prices are going up faster than wages. Uh, but uh, as, as long as inventories are restrained by COVID and by inefficiencies, that's going to remain the case. And we think it will be for the next few months, but we think we're getting near a peak. We're already seeing signs that the supply shortages are starting to ease, that inventories are starting to catch up. And generally speaking, 
factories are are starting to catch up to demand. And as that happens, we get through the, the middle part of 2022. The restrictions come off a little further. We think we'll see a stronger economy, somewhat weaker inflation on its way even lower in 2023. And when it comes to uh, energy, I mean, we're seeing eh, it's dipping today. Oil's down about 3%, but energy's certainly been up. Uh, and that just continues to add to inflation, right? Even beyond any sort of supply chain issues or anything like that? That's right. And you could even say that energy is a supply chain problem. It's a supply problem anyway, that OPEC uh, has managed a very good supply or production discipline. But look, OPEC over time has never managed that for an extended period of time. If energy prices, oil prices continue to rise, eventually OPEC producers will want to produce more volume in order to get more revenue for themselves. Remember, these are companies owned by governments. They need to generate employment and revenue for themselves. They're not about taking advantage just of the higher, highest price at lower quantity. They want price and quantity. Once we start seeing that quantity, you'll start to see prices come back down a little bit. But, uh, you know, we've probably seen the worst in terms of the increases. What remains now is to see how quickly that output, that supply of oil, comes back online. Thanks so much for all the analysis. That's Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. A survey by CNN finds more than three quarters of Americans believe Facebook is making society worse. We welcome Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, author of the new book, An Executive Guide to the World of Decentralized Finance, based in New York. Uh, Shelley, I mean, there's really no way about it. This is not good news for Facebook. No, it isn't. Um, they, they have actually been uh, the uh, hearers of a, a string of relatively bad news over the last few weeks. Uh, this is the icing on the cake for these guys, and uh, no one should be surprised. And though, if you're Facebook, though, I mean, you have a PR problem, obviously, and yet you have a lot of people using your platform. I mean, how, how concerned do they have to be? I don't think they have to be concerned at all. This is really the strange paradox of Facebook. Everybody likes to Facebook hate. Everybody likes to Facebook bash. And for good reason. It's not like there aren't valid reasons to go off on Facebook. There are. Um, however, there's no replacement from a business perspective. And, and consumers, they say they hate it, and yet there are 3.7 billion registered users across all of Facebook's platforms. And people are on it every day. There's been no dip in usage. If you are an advertiser and you want to put the right message in front of the right person at the right place at the right time, there is no more efficacious dollar you can spend. If you want to get X dollar, if you're looking for an ROI or an ROAS, return on advertiser spend against your advertising budget, you're not going to do better than a targeted audience on Facebook. They know it, you know it, and so for all of the hating on Facebook, which is very popular and easy to do, they got a big target. You know, Cisco, I'm going to date myself. When I was a little kid, uh, I, I heard and saw on the news that Sears was being sued, and my father turned around to me and said, Sears Roebuck has more lawsuits against it than any company in the world. I said, how come? Because it's the biggest retailer in the world. And so it makes total sense. And yet you've had a lot of people in Congress, both the House and the Senate, kind of go after Facebook. They don't really do anything, but they no. bring them in and they yell at them a little bit. But if you have this sort of unpopularity, is there a chance that maybe it makes those politicians feel like they could do something to Facebook? The problem with the politicians is that they not only know that they can get elected using Facebook, they know they can get unelected on Facebook. So they're a little bit careful. Remember, every media company that goes after Facebook, every unpopular story you see, there isn't a media company in the world that doesn't compete with them at an existential level. Facebook is that good at its job. You look at Facebook, Google, and Amazon, 
That's the advertising business now. Everybody else is playing catch-up. And, yeah, you could say, okay, well, what about television? What about it? Television is a fraction the size, fraction the size of the digital businesses at Facebook, Google, and Amazon. So we're, we're you know, this is a thing. Yeah, they've got a PR problem. By the way, they've always had a PR problem. Mark Zuckerberg is not a particularly personable guy. Sheryl Sandberg's not particularly good on camera. They've lost Caroline Averson. She was amazing on camera. Full disclosure, Facebook has been a good sponsor of our innovation series uh, summits for years. And Caroline's a close friend of mine. She was amazing for them. But the, most of the executives there aren't good on camera. They've always had a PR problem. That's not new. Uh, what is also not new is that there's no replacement from a business perspective. And consumers, for all they say that they don't like Facebook and they hate it and they're deleting it, there's still uh, three out of four people that are on the Internet in the world are on Facebook. Well, and you, you have whatever your problems are with Facebook. They're the same if you move to a different platform. I mean, it's basically the same yeah. things going on. Well, not only are there basically the same things going on, in some cases it's actually worse because Facebook being in the, in the uh, sites, in the gun sites of Congress as they are, has, uh, they've cleaned up their act quite a bit. Google, too. They're getting sued left and right. Understand, these companies are playing a game that most people do not understand. The, the, the data elite use data. They turn it into action. They use the exhaust data that we create. They use your keystrokes. They use your location. They use your, like, all of the things, the digital trail you leave everywhere is all consumed and all uh, used to create enriched profiles about you. And so they are capable of doing this at a level that normal people, A, don't understand, and normal companies cannot. So they, everybody is outmatched by Google, Facebook, Amazon. Go down the list of the elite tech companies, unless you go deep into how they function, you have no understanding, no possible way that you're going to come at them. Washington is outgunned here completely. I, I literally don't think this is going to mean anything to Facebook. It never does because, again, they're, they're on a different playing field. Always good to talk with Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, author of the new book, An Executive Guide to the World of Decentralized Finance. Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Personal Finance Wednesday. As the year winds down, it's an excellent time to take stock of your financial situation. Let's get some direction from Ed Jertson, certified financial planner, founder of Engage Wealth Group, online, engagewealthgroup.com. Uh, Ed, I guess we want to know the top thing if we're going to take stock of our financial situation here at the end of the year what's the number one thing we should do well the number one thing is to look at your investment mix cisco so since 2009 the stock market has this incredible run and so your allocation how much you're investing into stocks and into bonds over time just leaving that portfolio in place could have changed dramatically exposing you to more risk so make sure that those percentages and that allocation fits your current frame of mind when it comes to risk because those numbers can be have been very skewed since uh, again the lows of uh, 2009 in the stock market so is that something that we're talking about what to do at the end of the year is that something that should be done maybe two or three times during the year yeah, so it's something called rebalancing. So if you're an investor who accepts moderate risk, so let's say 60% of your investments are in stocks, 40% in bonds, you want to kind of keep that investment risk parameters around the same. Well, again, if you've just kind of left your portfolio in place, those numbers can be skewed. So maybe you have 70% in stocks or 80% in stocks. And so one way to keep in balance is every year, look to rebalance that account back to that 60-40. So when things go south in the stock market, which they will, you're able to withstand that from a psychology standpoint and not make a knee-jerk psychological reaction to it.
So um, you're you're talking about you know d- looking at diversification, making sure that your portfolio is in line like that. Uh, what else do we need to do, especially given the fact that there's a lot of financial uncertainty? Yeah, one of the things is to look at your portfolio from a tax lens. And, and one of the things to kind of look at is something called tax lost harvesting, where you're looking to see if any of the holdings within your portfolio have a long-term capital loss that you can actually offset with a long-term capital gain. And the reason that's important is that can potentially reduce future tax liability. And with everything going on in Congress in terms of what they're potentially look at is another good strategic uh, approach to your portfolio. Okay, so let's talk about uh, as far as those stocks go. I mean, I, I look at my portfolio probably way off in the, way more often than I should, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out what do I keep, what what do I uh, go ahead and sell. How, how do we work through that at the end of the year? Yeah, that's great. When you're talking about individual stocks, that gets a little bit more challenging. But a good approach, Cisco, is to remove the all or none approach from your mindset. And what I mean by that, it doesn't mean you need to sell 100% of one stock, especially one that's at a gain. You can sell a portion of that stock to potentially reduce your risk. But keep in mind, anytime you sell a stock at a gain, that's capital gains that trickles down to your tax return, that might have an impact not only on your overall taxes, but also Medicare premium. So anybody over 65 taking Medicare, be aware that any of these changes can have an impact on your overall life. And one last uh, uh, item, Cisco, is, you know, check in with a certified financial planner or a tax professional before doing some of these elements to make sure it doesn't disrupt your financial life. Thanks so much. That's Ed Jertsen, certified financial planner, Engage Wealth Group. Investing 60 minutes each weekday toward planning for the future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Markets are in the red. The Dow down 134, NASDAQ down 178, and the S&P down 23 points. Now let's see what's going on. Tim Grisky is here, Senior Portfolio Strategist at Ingalls & Snyder in New York. Tim, always good to have you on the show. What do you make of what you're seeing on Wall Street today? Well, a little profit-taking today, Cisco. Uh, not a surprise because this market has really been on fire uh, since uh, middle of October. Uh, it's just gone straight up. So. Nothing goes straight up forever, and there's some profit-taking today, really across the board, especially uh, in the growth sector, uh, but you know, also uh, other sectors of the market. Energy is the, the biggest sector that's down uh, on concern, really, about uh, rising interest rates, and we're seeing interest rates pop up today uh, as well, so uh, that doesn't help bond prices. And that uh, the, that idea of inflation, I mean, that's been going on a while now as we go through the pandemic, and yet we're not quite sure how long it's going to continue. What does that kind of uncertainty do to investors? Now that is the million-dollar question. We, we've seen this temporary, likely temporary, spike of inflation. Uh, the Fed is very, um, you know, determined uh, and convinced that this is a temporary spike, uh, that inflation is going to come down. And in, indeed, we've seen a number of the inflationary factors, uh, lumber, for instance, come down significantly here. Uh, semiconductors are probably the biggest concern, uh, and uh, there is a lot of production going on to catch up in terms of semiconductors. That impacts a lot of products. Uh, and, you know, we, but we think uh, we might actually see a, a semiconductor surplus here out six months from now, 12 months from now, something like that. So, uh, we're not concerned about it, but certainly that's impacting the markets today, sending uh, bond yields higher as uh, investors are worried about that this inflation may last longer than we think. 
So going forward, I mean, um, you know, if you say in October inflation was 6%, then investors need to understand, I mean, in reality, their portfolio is worth 6% less than it was a month ago. So what, what, what do we do if that continues? Well, that's not a good thing. Inflation is a real um, negative for uh, uh, stock market values, for housing values, really across the board. If you look historically, uh, periods of, of high inflation have sent our economy into a tailspin, into a recession. Uh, and we've had some really bad periods uh, when that has occurred. We don't think we're in anything like that here. Uh, and if you look at the um, PCE index, which is the Fed's favorite measure of inflation, it's much lower than the CPI we saw reported today or the PPI, producer price index, we saw reported yesterday. So uh, I, I, we are not concerned that this is going to be a long-term issue, but the market is concerned about it today. Let's talk about uh, one stock in particular, Rivian, uh, up in trading. Uh, seems like, I mean, they have some big backing, Amazon and Ford. Seems like a really interesting stock. Oh, this is a, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting company. This is the, the company that is dedicated to making electric trucks. Uh, and uh, they are pretty much uh, the first mover here uh, in this market. Uh, so uh, they are the, the Tesla of trucks. Uh, it IPO today at a, at a very high price above where it was expected to. And right now it's up another 50% almost. So uh, this uh, stock is getting very high demand. It's not, it seems like it's the late 90s with the IPO boom in tech stocks uh, uh, when you see uh, action like this today. But this is a company that uh, it's hard to justify the valuation uh, that it's selling at now. Uh, having said that, you know, it's great to own some today. Yeah, those valuations always interesting. There's a lot of them that you say, well, how, how in the world? Why are people paying that? And yet, for whatever reason, they just keep doing that. Thanks so much, Tim Grisky, Senior Portfolio Strategist at Ingalls & Snyder. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Personal Finance Wednesday. This afternoon, we're looking at key things you need to consider when deciding when to retire. Tony Agoric is here, founder of Agoric Wealth Management based in Buffalo, New York. Uh, Tony, I mean, a lot of people, especially as we come out of the pandemic, thinking about retirement, uh, what's maybe the number one thing that they have to consider before they actually pull the trigger? Well, Cisco, I think the number one thing is deciding whether this is the right time for you to retire. Now, a lot of places are going to focus exclusively on the financial aspect of this decision, which is, can I afford to retire? Um, and, you know, they focus on that because it's quantifiable. Uh, the problem is that, you know, it's not just are you able to financially retire, uh, but are you emotionally ready to retire? You know, do you have a support system outside of work? Has work been your whole life? Has that been your, you know, your social circle? So many people that we work with, um, 
you know, indicate that one of the reasons they put off retiring is because they don't know what they would do with the time um, that they'd have available. So it's really financial, you know, as well as uh, emotional readiness to retire. And that, I mean, I, mean I, I don't know if any people would really think about this or not. It almost seems like you need some sort of pre-retirement counseling to be able to work through some of that, to, to be able to prepare for what it looks like on the other side. Yeah, you know, it's true, Cisco. And, you know, what uh, research tells us is that as we age, uh, our social relationships uh, become an increasingly important component of our physical and mental health. And the other thing that people need to understand is, you know, just because you're retired doesn't mean that you don't have to continue to grow your social network of people. Uh, so I think these are really crucial things. People know these things. It, you know, it, it's on their mind. They don't often articulate it, uh, but they, they do need to deal with these things. And then I think it's useful, you know, to have some coaching throughout the, you know, uh, years of retirement uh, to indicate whether I'm really achieving the, you know, the type of life um, that my money can afford me to have. And you're figuring that out, you know, can I actually do this? Can I, can I actually handle this? And uh, you're, you're trying to figure out, uh, I guess, what those opportunities are. You know, some people are going to volunteer. Some people are maybe going to uh, start another career. I mean, you really do have to figure out what it looks like on day one. You do. And, you know, you know, if you're married, uh, you're going to be spending a lot of time with, uh, you know, with your spouse or partner. Uh, how does that work? You know, oftentimes people have had separate lives. Now you're thrown together. How are you going to navigate that? Um, you know, that's uh, that's a real issue. And, and one thing uh, which is really, really interesting, Cisco, is uh, that many people who've accumulated assets, uh, you know, have been thrifty. And they've been in an accumulation phase for maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Now, all of a sudden, the reason they've accumulated the money, which is to be able to spend it, they find it very difficult to do that. So there's a real fear, you know, with, with people in terms of either running out of money or really not spending up to the lifestyle they could be spending up to. And, and you know, therefore, they may have regrets down the road because of that. I've always said, if you can tell me the day I'm going to die, I'll make sure that last dime is spent on that day. Yeah, I'll have yeah, no well, problem doing that. You know, that is the truth. But, you know, what, what a shame it is if, if people, you know, have the ability to spend, for example, let's say another 1000 or $2,000 a month on things, either helping other people or enjoying themselves, and they never did it because of this fear, sometimes irrational, that they're going to be running out of money. What a sad day it is, you know, in the event that they, they get some bad news or something, that, that they really didn't live up to the, the potential that their resources offer to them. Thanks so much. Good insight. That's Tony Agoric, founder of Agoric Wealth Management, helping you plan for retirement financially and otherwise. Cashing in with conversation. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Your credit limits can be a help or a hindrance to your credit score. Let's get some help from Ted Rossman, industry analyst at creditcards.com. Uh, Ted, help us to understand credit limits here. I mean, what is it? Who determines it? What are some things that actually play into how high that credit limit is? 
Your credit limit is basically how much a credit card issuer is going to let you spend, how much available credit you have. And it has a key factor, not just in your purchasing power, but also in your credit score. Because what's called your credit utilization ratio, credit you're using divided by credit available to you, that's part of the second biggest category in the credit scoring formula. In total, this part of the score is 30%. And it just is a really good reminder that you want to keep this ratio as low as possible. So obviously paying down your credit card debt, um, but also realizing that it's usually reported on the statement date. So even if you use the card a lot and you pay it in full, you may still have a high ratio. So it's something to be aware of. And when it comes to multiple cards, does it matter if uh, maybe maybe you have a, a little bit on this card, a little bit on this card, a little bit on this card, or, or if you have a bunch on one card and hardly anything on another, do, does any of that matter how it's distributed? It's typically reported on each individual card and then also on all of your cards combined. So in general, a lot of people say, well, try to keep it below 30% on each card and also in total. Many of the people with the best credit scores keep it below 10%. Really, whatever it is now, if you bring it down, it should help your score. And there's a couple ways you can play it. One would be making extra payments and including those who pay in full and avoid interest you might even consider making an extra mid-month payment to knock that number down before the statement even comes out. The other lever you could pull is to ask for a higher credit limit because that's going to play on the other part of this ratio. So having more available credit generally keeps it easier to keep that ratio down. Well, talk about that. I think many people are afraid to call and ask for more credit, thinking that you know maybe the company thinks you're having a financial hardship or something like that. It actually works about three quarters of the time. And typically it's nothing ventured, nothing gained. Sometimes a card issuer will place a hard inquiry on your report. You probably try to avoid that just because you don't want too many of those. And that can ding your score a little bit in the short term. But especially if it's just a soft inquiry, most issuers are only a soft inquiry. It's a very routine request. It, it doesn't make you look risky, you know, contrary to the popular belief. Um, so it's definitely something that you could have some success asking for, and uh, it could help your credit score. Thanks so much, Ted Rossman, industry analyst at creditcards.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.